You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. It's 1300 on a Saturday afternoon in a massive airplane hangar full of a thousand soldiers standing at attention. As the three highest ranking officers in the room march onto stage, the first, a general, and the commander of the parent unit turns and faces the outgoing wing commander. The outgoing wing commander hands him the unit guide on, a small flag that represents the unit's colors and says, sir, I relinquish command. He then sharply steps to the side and back. The third officer steps forward and takes the guide on and says, sir, I assume command. A thousand year old ceremony is once again complete. After 18 years of military service and four rounds of military professional education, I can tell you that there are very few things more important to the military organization than command. Command is not simply passed along with an email or a handshake. It is ceremonial. Ceremonial. About every other month I attend a change of command ceremony like the one described for one of the two dozen tenant units that we have at Ellington Joint Reserve Base. These events date back a millennia to the Roman legions. In the times of the Roman Empire, units were massive and it was not uncommon for soldiers to never physically see their commander. To address this issue and ensure continuity of command, each legion would be called to formation to personally witness the guidon, or in the Roman context, the crest, being passed from one officer to the next. This history is read before every change of command to this day, and the procedures down to the very footwork of the incoming and outgoing commander have been preserved. Ceremonies like this are normally short and very formal, but are packed with meaning. Military command is the essence of military leadership. It not only represents a position of incredible power, but terrifying responsibility. For the moment that that guidon is placed in the hands of the new commander, that person owns every action and every outcome of the unit, regardless of the conditions, challenges, or hardships the new commander must use his delegated power to execute his unit's mission or job. He does this by disciplining, training, and developing his people. He does this by managing equipment, facilities, formal guidance, and subordinates' time. He does this by aligning his organization within the larger military construct. He does this by improving processes and then validating all these capabilities through inspection. Command is a relationship of love and trust between the leader and the lead that creates a symbiotic relationship of function that ends in the completion of the mission. I did not make any of that up. I actually took it from the Air Force Instruction 1.2 entitled Commander's Responsibility, an Air Force instruction that formally institutes an outline of command that has been handed down to the modern militaries from the times of the Romans. The Romans had a verb that encapsulated the meaning of command and its relationship. It was called hupotasso, a verb that Paul would have been very familiar with as a high-ranking Pharisee in the Sanhedrin and by proxy the Roman 
Jewish government, he was very familiar with soldiers and likely led or in many functional ways commanded them at times. Of all the verbs that Paul could have used to define the marriage relationship in Ephesians 5, he uses a military one, hupotasso, and he used it for a reason. This reason is he is trying to convey a picture of a command-like relationship between the husband and wife, one that we can learn more about through the military lens that it has preserved for us in our culture. As we do this, let's again open our Bibles, and we're going to start reading again here in verse 20. Although there is application here for the entire church, we will find Paul is focusing on husband as he structures God's authority within our homes. He calls on husbands to do three things, which will form the three outline points of our discussion this morning. First, husbands are to command their homes. Second, they are to love their wives at their expense. And third, they are to do these things for the sake of the gospel. Starting in verse 20, give thanks always and for everything. To the God, our Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. This brings us to our first point. Husbands, command your homes. Hupatasso, translated in verse 20, is a compound verb made up of two parts. Tasso, which means to arrange or put under, and hypo, which means beneath. Hupatasso is a verb as a verb means to be under the command of. Now you will notice that today our passage starts in verse 22, however I started reading in verse 20. That is because the verb, hapatazo, does not exist in verse 22, but is brought forward in the Greek from 21. For this, reasons, many, for this reason, many scholars since 1968 have merged it with the prior two verses to support this idea of mutual submission. And there is truth to that. As we see in the first part of Ephesians 5, we are to live lives of mutual hapatasso. That is, that we are supposed to have an attitude or demeanor of yielding to one another's and putting others before ourselves. And this is even more true in the church as we seek to live lives of service to one another and to the church of Christ. However, verse 20 and 21 serve as an introduction to the next part of Ephesians 5. If, Paul inspired, if Paul's inspired intent was to simply communicate this, then likely the chapter, even the book, would have ended at this point, or at least skipped ahead. But it does not. From this point on, Paul dives in to what hupotasso looks like in the church and in our Christian homes. Any other reading of this would be largely redundant. Moreover, that we see this exact same command in the New Testament with the same verb in similar context in two other places. Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting to the Lord. And 1 Peter 3, 1 says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe in the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Now with that foundation led, read, let's again go dive in to verses 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands in the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and it's himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. We see several layers of hupotasso here. Wife to husband, husband to church, church to Christ. But let's start with the first. In verse 22, we see the first level of hupotasso within the family order. Now this is a very difficult passage. 
for the church and to handle throughout its existence, and especially since our culture has taken a turn about 50 years ago with the sexual revolution. Moreover, we do not have to look very far to find where passages like this have been used to hurt and demean women in our culture and in the church, going much back further, going further back than that. This is what makes this passage especially sensitive. So I think it would be wise to start by defining what this passage and this verb are not saying before we dive into what they are. First, this passage is not saying that in any way wives are inferior humans or inferior persons to their husbands before God or secondary entities behind their, their husbands spiritually. In fact, Jesus answers the Sadducees many, in, Sadducees many inquiries into the spiritual implications of marriage on the resurrection by saying in Matthew 22, 29, you are wrong because you need, know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like the angels of heaven. Marriage is designed as an earthly union with a specific function that is not intended to confer on husbands some, some special, superior, spiritual worth or precedent. Second, this passage is not saying that in any way women are lesser in the eyes of God or have less worth in the creative order. From the very beginning, we see men and women are both created in the image of God in Genesis 1.27. And then in Galatians 3.28, says in reference to the church, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. And this idea is repeated many other places in Scripture. Third, this passage is not saying that women are called to be simply participatory servants or slaves in their homes unto their husbands. We see in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, the son himself is called to hupatasso, the same verb, unto the father. And the Bible is very clear that the son does not, in, does not inferior to the father, nor was there a time when the son was not and the father was. Throughout Christ's ministry, we see many examples of him, the son, yielding to God, the father. The starkest would be in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark uh, 14, 36 and Luke 22, 42. We see Jesus say the famous phrase, not my will, but yours be done before heading to the cross after a night of intense prayer, asking for his father to, quote, remove this cup from me. Finally, this passage is not saying that wives are positionally the children of their husbands. I know that sounds absolutely absurd, but when you delve into the interpretations of this passage that are harmful to women, you very quickly end up in an interpretation that for all intents and purposes puts women or wives in their homes at the same level as their children in reference to their husbands. This was not the intent of the passage. Paul could have chosen another verb, like hapaku. Hapaku was used in the next chapter, chapter 6, in reference to children and their parents. This verb is one that, that refers to absolute subjection or obedience. Wives are not called to hapaku, to their husbands. They are called to hapatasso, to their husbands. In fact, hapaku occurs 21 times in the New Testament, and never in reference to a wife's overall disposition to her husband. So what is being said? With this background lay, let's dive into what this passage actually does mean, what this verb actually does mean in this context. We laid out from the beginning of the sermon that the verb hapatasso is military in its origin and would not have been unfamiliar to the Ephesians in the first century. However, I think it's fair to say that the Ephesians would not have expected it to be used by Paul 
in the context of marriage. Greco-Roman culture had a tradition of marriage that would have been more of a hapaku situation. Women in the first century were largely commoditized, and sadly so. And this choice of verb by Paul could have been very well, could have very well shocked the men and the women of the Ephesian church in the opposite way that it shocks us today in our culture. The reason that Paul chose this word is because the Ephesian church would have not been unfamiliar with all of the concepts uh, with this concept of authority. Hapatasu was first translated submit or to be subject to a few hundred years ago. And since then, authority in Western culture has all, been, been, all but been eroded. What is left is a meaningless hus that in practice is little more than degradation. Because of this, submitting has a negative context in our society. And the negativity has only grown after, over the last hundred years. The word just rolls off the tongue wrong. We don't want to submit to someone or something, regardless of what it is or who that may be. This is because we have very few relationships with authority in our modern culture. We live historically unprecedented lives of independence and tremendous recourse. However, Greco-Roman society was not so. Authority was reflected in every facet of life, and it was not necessarily seen as a negative thing. In fact, order is a gift of God, and when used in accordance with his design, this part of this ancient culture would have seemed to preserve in parallel with the biblical context in a time capsule of our, of our military. The United States military is really an amalgamation of Greek, Spartan, and largely Roman ideas. From our very structure to the rank and the insignia that we wear in our uniforms. For this reason, the United States military has created kind of a time capsule, if you will, of Greco-Roman world that we can use in some ways to better understand authority and this word used in the Ephesians and in this context. Paul is laying out a command structure within the home. Just like the military has this type of order, this text is saying, so does the home. The husband is the commander of his wife and his home, and she is directly beneath him as the vice commander. Notice she is the vice commander and not the private. She submits herself to her husband, she hupatasso unto her husband in a chain of command that ends with God. This is laid out even more clearly in 1 Corinthians 11.3. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God, and the head of Christ is God. In fact, submission in a military context is actually viewed as a quite a positive thing. For instance, a position that answers only to the chiefs of staff or secretary or president is seen as very important. Often who you submit to, who you hopatasso unto within a military context is used to more correctly reflect your level of authority as opposed to who submits to you. I might humbly suggest that perhaps answers only might be a better interpretation of hupatasso in the English in this verb given our current culture and use of the English language. That is to say the wife answers only to her own husband and in turn God. Moreover, hopatasso does, does not only mean to ultimately obey, but it also means to support and handle a great deal of delegated responsibility. This is how this verse can be reconciled with pictures of great women in the Bible, Mary, Ruth, Esther's, Esther, and the ideals laid, out, ideals laid out for women in Proverbs 31. Let's go ahead and open to Proverbs 31, and we'll read a few verses there as it'll set up some of the context here 
for the rest of the sermon, starting in verse 10. Proverbs 31.10. A wife of noble character who can find? She is worth more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. Verse 14, she is like a merchant ship bringing her goods from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong to her cash. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. We don't see a picture here of a simple housemaid. We see a woman of initiative and capability and strength who has the full trust of her husband in the handling of the most important functions of the home and beyond. We, we, as we move forward into verses 22, 23 to 24 of this passage, we see a couple other layers of hupatasa or submission that can also be confusing, confusing but are ultimately cleared up with an understanding of this military context of hupatasa. Let's go back here to Ephesians, and we'll read verses 23 and 24. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself, his Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. There is a heresy out there at the fringes of complementarianism that would say that this passage means that the husband is basically, basically God's divine revelatory arm in the home. That is to say that wives are to submit to their husbands because their husbands are basically God or Christ to them. However, we will notice in verse 23 that the passage says, even as, this is a sequence phrase, not just as, which is a comparison phrase. Paul is reaching back to verse 20 and pulling this full circle. He has just used a military verb and in essence, a military, in essence, a military metaphor. So he is sequencing the chain of command, wives to husbands, husbands to church, church to Christ. And then he goes on to start laying the foundation for verses 25, 28. This is where a clear understanding of military authority and the basis of this verb is so helpful in understanding what's being said here. Military chains of command are always necessarily nested. That is to say that just because in my current position, I'm 12 levels below the, pre the President of the United States, I do not exercise the level of authority of the President of the United States to those un under me. I have a certain amount of clearly defined legal authority that I am able to execute. I am not the President of the United States. And in, in my subordinates in the same way, <clears throat> to my subordinates, and in the same way, I am not Christ or God to my wife. I am the commander of my home, but I am still underneath Christ and his scripture. Therefore, I cannot legally or biblically command my wife to sin. We see a perfect example, a very pointed example of this function, of this type of verb and this type of authority in Acts 5. Starting first with Romans 13.1, we are told that, quote, every person should be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The subjection should be subject to, in this verse, is the same verb that we find in Ephesians 5, hapatasu. However, 
Let's take a look at Acts 5. In Acts 5.27, the apostles are sitting before a governing body appointed by God and are being asked why they have been teaching and preaching Christ when they have been specifically instructed by their government not to do so. Peter answers the, in Acts 5.29 with the famous phrase, we must obey God rather than men. This is a correct and wonderful application of hapatasso, or to submit in this verb. Acts 5 is clearly setting up a chain of command. We are to hupatasso under the governing authorities who have been established by God. However, in this verse, God is not handing over to that authorities his seat. He is not making them God. Within the chain of command, the government, in this example, has exceeded God's given, God's given authority to them. And at that point, their orders are no longer legal, they are no longer biblical. The subject of legal orders and the commander and the subordinate responsibility is one over which much ink has been spilled in professional military education since the time of the Romans. However, the concept is clear. Each level that Paul details in Ephesians 5 is subordinate to the one, enough, to the one above within the legal confines of Holy Scripture. Wiser hutupitasso to their husbands. While this word is directed at the wife in this context, it has just as much, if not more, meaning to the husband. Paul is saying in the context of the, of the husband that he is to be the commander of his home. From the moment the ring is placed on his hand, he has delegated a level of authority from Christ, and therefore the new commander owns every action and every outcome from his family. This is an incredibly weighty responsibility. In the military, there are small commands and large commands. When a command is particularly challenging or large, the military will appoint a vice or a deputy commander. Wives, you are the deputy commander. It is also important to point out one additional thing. Notice in verse 24, it does not continue to establish a parallel family order. For example, the eldest son shall not hupatasso or submit unto his father. The next chapter, the next chapter here in Ephesians makes it clear calling all children to hypoku or obey their parents. No wise, too, must lead their, their families, answering only unto their husband. Everyone else is to hapakau, obey within the structure, or stay out of it. This is another aspect of Ephesians 5 that might have been equally shocking to the first century Ephesian church. Not only had women been largely commoditized, sadly, within their culture, but the agrarian, the agrarian economies of the Eastern Mediterranean was, was the, a point of much communal living. Furthermore, we know from the book of Acts that much of the persecuted church in the first century had to resort to communal living as well, even in urban areas, for protection and the sharing of resources. It is not a stretch to say that these two dynamics would have led to a blurring and a usurping of authority structures in the home by other families or even older children. This is why Paul felt it necessary to put your own in front of husbands. The Greek word here is idios, which is an adjective that means to pertain to oneself, one's own, belonging to oneself. It isolates the verb. In other words, wives, you answer only to your own husbands, not wives submit to all men or wives submit to all husbands. Husbands do not squander the most valuable resource that God has given you in this command. A wise husband will delegate a great deal of authority to his wife within the home. 
and will equip her and develop her to handle it. A godly wife will take that authority and execute it well and faithfully within her God-given role. And in his absence, she will take charge. This is why we read in Proverbs 31.10, an excellent wife who can find. She is more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts her, and he will have no lack of gain. And then goes on to describe a woman of capability, means, and wisdom. A wise husband will listen to his wife and encourage her advice and her feedback. Husbands, if you are developing your wife to be little more than a nanny or a maid, you're doing it wrong. A good wife will provide wise counsel to her husbands. Wives, you owe your husband your best advice within proper context, but ultimately your submission to his direction. Wives, if you're competing for authority within the home with your husband, or if you are, affer- or if you are afraid to provide input into the decision-making process of your home, you're doing it wrong. Church, if we, make a, if we make jokes or offer advice that sounds like, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, or after 40 years of marriage, I finally learned the key to happiness and it's yes, dear, please stop. This passage rebukes you. And those sentiments, although jokes, can be poisonous to young marriages and the church body. The husband and wife relationship is God's design and represents a symbiotic command team focused on God's mission, a reflection of something even greater that we will see here in the following verses. This is the metaphor that Paul is presenting. And after defining the husband's authority within, the, within marriage and the home, he goes on to further detail the husband's impressive list of responsibilities to his wife. Let's continue to read about that as we get into our second point here in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own who loves his wife loves himself. For, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. That brings us to point number two. Husbands, love your wives at your own expense. Dr. Peter F. Drucker, the man celebrated as the father of modern-day business management, famously wrote, Authority without, re- without responsibility is tyranny, and responsibility without authority is impotence. We could, he could not have been more correct. In fact, most great atrocities committed in our world can be traced back to an imbalance of these two things, authority and responsibility. Husbands, Christ has granted us authority within our homes, and equal to that weighty authority is an absolute weighty responsibility. Paul does not waste any time before developing that here in verse 25. In fact, there is not a command for wives to submit or be subject to their husbands in the New Testament that is not immediately followed by a command for husbands to love their wives. Here the text says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I want to pause there for just a moment and let that sink in. Our love for our wives should be modeled after Christ's love for the church. What did Christ do to the church, for the church? Christ, who is God incarnate, came from heaven, stooping down an incomprehensible distance 
to his lowly creation to die on a cross so that we might have hope for eternity. That is a model for which we strive and are called. The theologian John Stott further developed this point by defining five verbs in this verse. He loved, he gave, he sanctified, he cleansed, and he presented. This statement is beautifully complete, encapsulating Christ's love for the church from past to future eternity. He loved the church, referencing his eternal existence in which he set out to love his people and determined to come to save them. He gave himself for the church, representing this salvific work on the cross, cleansing and presenting. The tenses of these verbs suggest that cleansing of the church preceded her consecration or sanctification. The cleansing seems to refer to an initial purification of sin, which we receive when we first repent and believe in Christ. Christ did this to create for himself a bride of moral beauty, to be presented without spot to himself upon that day. Perhaps there has never been more a more, perhaps there has never been a more deeper and significant, meaningful description of love. Husbands, our love for our wives should be modeled after Christ's salvific love. Also notice that the church does not clean itself up. Likewise, husband, your job is to not simply present a standard and then evaluate your wife on her ability to keep it. The scripture here is teaching that we are to love our wives at our own expense, leading our marital Christian walk and sanctification of our spouses through discipleship, prayer, service in the body, engagement with the word, and in the proclamation of the gospel, just as Christ demonstrated with his church. This is the ideal, but the standard is laid out in verses 28 through 30. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, knowing that we could never mentally ascend to the height of Christ's love for his church. Paul decides to make it real by calling out our own selfish love for our flesh as the standard for how we should love our wives. Starting again in verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. This runs incredibly countercultural. Outside these doors, we are told to love ourselves, to forgive ourselves, and maybe spread the excess around. Paul says, no, the standard of love that you are called on for your wives is the same as what you instinctively have for your own corrupt flesh. However, what does this look like? How is this applied? Well, it takes different situational forms, but there's an example I like to draw upon when thinking about my attitude toward my wife, and it comes from a pastor I knew many years ago. In the late 1980s, he and his wife were living in Kansas City, Missouri. It was an exciting time for Kansas City. The economy was improving, the city was growing, and along with it, ministry opportunities were presenting themselves. Specifically, the Spanish-speaking community was taking root there and this pastor came from a Spanish-speaking background. He spoke the language and had a heart for this people. However, his wife lacked identification with Hispanic culture, which was not voiced when he took on a growing and promising bilingual church in Kansas City. She willingly sacrificed and lived in this foreign culture and listened to a foreign language while feeling like an outsider. For several years, she kept supporting him through though she and her children were out of their own culture in their home church. However, when it became apparent that she was struggling, God showed him that his wife needed to be in a church where she could grow spiritually. 
and have her children and their children's heart more joined with the congregation. So he put aside this pursuit. Instead, he took a small challenging church in Texas and chose to lead what he preferred and a ministry that was dear to his heart. For these duties detailed here in Ephesians 5, his wife submitted Hupatasso unto her husband, and he led his family and loved his wife at his own expense. Husbands, our authority comes with a great deal of responsibility to our wives, and the model is Christ. Paul concludes this chapter 5 starting in verse 31 that brings us to our third point. Verse 31 through 33, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, lest each of you, one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Brings us to our third point. Husbands are to do these things for the sake of the gospel. This passage starts out with a therefore, pointing back to the section that we just discussed concerning the high calling of husband, husbands and quotes Genesis 2.24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife and they become one flesh, pointing all the way back to the created order. Paul is saying, this is foundational. Why should we do it? Why should we try to achieve such a lofty goal in our corrupt flesh? Well, we should do it because it models a great mystery. The great mystery of Christ and his church unknown until the New Testament. Marriage is a reflection of a magnificent mystery of the union between Christ and his church, a mystery of why a holy Messiah would come to earth to human form and die on a cross to provide a salvation for salvation for a people who had ultimately rejected him. If you are here today and have not accepted the salvation offered freely through Christ, I implore you to talk to myself or one of the other members here after the service. Romans 3.10 says that there is no one righteous, not even one. And Romans 3.23 says, continues by saying that all have fallen short and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there is hope. Romans 5 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10 continues that if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The gift that comes from the mystery of why a holy Messiah would come to earth in human form and die on a cross, providing a salvation to a people who had ultimately rejected him, is offered freely to you here in Holy Scripture. Philippians 5, 2, 5 through 9 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To see how Christ's love manifests in our homes, we need to look no further than 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This culminates in a servant leadership that puts our wives and our families, the ones we leave, above ourselves. A leadership that humbly and intentionally takes the wheel for a purpose and for a time and then steps aside when God's purposes call for something greater. Husbands, if you want to reflect 
the magnificent mystery of the union between Christ and his church to your children. Love their mom. Wives, if you want to reflect the mystery of the union between Christ and his church to your children, respect your husband. Husbands, if you want to show God's love to a world that is dying, lovingly lead your wife. Wives, if you want to show Christ's love to the world, respectfully support your husband. It is hard to argue that there is a more powerful witness than a church full of strong marriages modeled after Christ's love for his church. Paul began this passage with a reference to the military and its structure, so I think it's only appropriate to end this sermon with another reference to the military and the power of what servant command can, can become. In downtown Philadelphia, there is a very famous museum called the Museum of the American Revolution. It is America's principal archive for the Revolutionary War, which resulted in the independence and official founding of our nation. Appropriately, there is an entire section there in this museum dedicated to the commander of the American forces under the Continental Congress during that conflict, General George Washington. The principal exhibit in this section, you might think, would perhaps be what? His sword? Maybe his uniform? Maybe a depiction of him in front of all the thousands of troops that he led? Or maybe a sample from one of the great ships, aircraft carriers, submarines that have been named in his honor? No, instead, the principal exhibit is a simple fabric tent a plain white canvas tent with red trim. There is nothing special about the tent itself. What's instead, what is important, is what it represents. You see, the entire U.S. military at that time, Hupatasso, submitted to their commanding general, George Washington, in their designated order. He was delegated an incredible amount of power from the Continental Congress, which passed appropriately down the chain of command, but ultimately, the entire war the lives of his men, and the outcome was his responsibility. Many of his contemporaries, whom history has whose history has largely forgotten, enjoyed these types of strati within the military. They would bask in lavish lifestyles afforded to officers in a largely unregulated military of the day. But not George Washington. Though it nearly killed him, he insisted on living in a tent in the middle of his men. He ran the entire war without a roof over his head. This servant leadership inspired his troops in many ways and is credited, along with other things, for America's success in that war. So impacted were his soldiers by this unprecedented act of love, camaraderie, and leadership that his men carefully preserved this tent within their families for 200 years before it was picked up formally by an American, military, or American, American museum system. Moreover, after his victory, he was offered the crown. There was a movement with some support from the Continental Congress led by Colonel Nicholas Lewis that asked him to be king of America, a position that would lead to more wealth and power beyond his wildest imagination. However, knowing that it was not best for the nation or his men, he declined and accepted a much muted position under the Constitution as a president and then voluntarily gave up that power after two terms and to retire quietly. Husbands, this is what proper leadership looks like on the receiving end of Hapatasso. This is the construct that Paul references here when addressing leadership in the home. 
This leadership lovingly exercises command, develops those underneath them, and then when it is all said and done, gives it up for something greater. And in our case, that something greater is the unification of Christ and his church. Let's pray.